0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. A couple of announcements just to remind you. Um, Number one, the Lost and Found is out in the fellowship hall, so you can... Remember to look for what you've forgotten. And then on mark your calendars for Saturday, December the fifth, for our uh, annual Christmas party, tree trimming and uh, Christmas song fest this year. And then we received an email this morning from I did from Jim Myers that yesterday, Roman Schuvar, Uh, went to be with the Lord. Some of you know uh, Bogdana, who used to be George's secretary for Schaefer Seminary, and her sister Oksana, who is um, Jim's secretary there in in, uh, Kiev, and this is their father. He's been fighting cancer for about four or five years, and it looked like it was in complete remission for a while, and then... um, he came back apparently very recently, but he, you know, in the meantime, he, uh, if he wasn't saved, he was saved and really had a, um, showed a lot of positive volition and would come to church even though he was in a lot of pain and um, just was a completely changed uh, person, just changed the whole family. So uh, he's going to be with the Lord so you can remember to pray for them and some of you may know, uh, know them and shoot them an email of encouragement. I uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in fellowship, ready to focus on the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful that we can come together this evening to be encouraged and strengthened by your word as we look back through these Old Testament examples of uh, men and women who stood for your word were positive, applied your word in key times, key events in the Old Testament, and therefore are marked down as evidence in the angelic conflict, evidence in human history of your truth, and, and evidence of your grace. Father, we pray for the Shuvar family, pray for Bogdana and Oksana and uh, their mother uh, during this time, and that as uh, the funeral will be conducted in the next, uh, probably t- today or tomorrow, that that will be an opportunity for many who do not know the gospel to hear the gospel, and hopefully there will be some that, are, that respond. And, Father, we also continue to pray for the school over there, for the ministry during this time of uh, unprecedented flu epidemic in, in Ukraine, and so many uh, of the, so much of the infrastructure has just been shut down including the colleges and the students sent home, things of that nature. So we continue to pray for those involved with the college uh, during this time, that uh, this will not be too much of a hindrance to the ministry. And we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking tonight as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm already hearing somebody thinking Ukraine is shut down because, not the swine flu, they've only had about, I don't know, four or five hundred documented cases of swine flu, but the regular flu. So how in the world can Robbie go over there? He'll come back say, I've had my flu shot. Thank you. I'm immune. God's going to protect me. I come back with the flu every year anyway, so why should this year be different? <laughs> Actually, I didn't last year. All right. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 11, and we will uh, briefly touch base here on, on the, our focal point. Hebrews chapter 11 is dealing with evidences, and evidence of faith in terms of people's lives, evidence of faith in terms of people's lives, that faith is the evidence of things uh, not seen, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. And so we see that evidence in terms of how people lived, how their lives changed, how at key points in their life they had the choice to trust God or not, and so these it's these episodes that are being brought out in Hebrews chapter eleven uh, because it is through their response to God's Word that they pressed forward in terms of their spiritual growth, but also because of the impact of these individuals and their faith in the history of Israel and God's plan and purpose for Israel, so that it became a testimony before the angels, a testimony before men, and a key uh, testimony in history to uh, God's faithfulness. And so, the event that we looked at last time focused on Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed. When you trust God or you believe something is true, you simply act as if it is true. That's obedience. If you believe that God says do this or don't do this and you follow suit, then that is because you believe it is true and you're acting as if it is true. That is obedience. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he would, which he would receive as an inheritance. And we focused last time as well on the connection of those words, uh, heir, inheritance, uh, promise, focusing on future fulfillment of a promise that had been made by God and as well as their future possession, that's that idea of inheritance, and trace that through in a summary review of the doctrine of inheritance. And so Abraham lived his life as well as as did Isaac and Jacob without owning any land other than the cave of Machpelah, uh, which is where Abraham And Sarah were buried. They did not own any land in the land that God promised them, but they were looking forward to that ultimate fulfillment. So Abraham, the reference here is to the call in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out, to leave his comfort zone, to leave his family, everybody behind uh, Genesis twelve one, the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. He had no idea what his ultimate destiny would be at the beginning. And then that is followed in the next uh, couple of verses by the Abrahamic covenant, as we looked at last time, promising land, seed, and blessing. Uh, each of those elements later developed in uh Co- subsequent covenants with Israel, the land, the seed, and the blessing. So in verse 9, we, we read, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. It wasn't his home. He wasn't considered uh, a na- native to the population. He was a sojourner. That's a key word in uh, in Genesis, the Hebrew word "gur," and indicating that he was one who just lived and traveled in the land, but he didn't have a uh, la- have land property to call uh, to call his own. He was just someone who was passing through looking to something that was future, something that was more uh, more important that relates back to the promise of God used thirteen times in Hebrews and five times in this chapter. And so that's the, the focal point here. And the promise was a, a, <clears throat> the fulfillment of the land promised, given to him. And also, we're told, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now tell me where in Genesis you get we get any information that Abraham knew anything about a future city. It's not there. But there's a lot of information that God revealed... To Noah, to Adam, to others in the Old Testament that's not recorded in Scripture. And so we can we know from these kinds of little uh little openings, little hints, that they knew a lot more about future things. Enoch did in terms of prophecy as well. They knew a lot more about future things and about God's plan and purposes than, than we can document from looking at the scripture. And they had a clear understanding of of much, and, and Abraham clearly did too. And as we'll see in our study tonight, he even had a good understanding of re- the doctrine of resurrection, which if you listen to liberal scholars, you listen to others, this is not uh, even in the Old Testament. But it's clear when you interpret the, you know, when you have the New Testament to sort of fill out the skeletal uh, revelation that we have in the Old Testament, that they did understand these particular uh, aspects. And so at the very core of Abraham's life, why Abraham is praised uh, is the Abrahamic covenant. And Sarah is praised in verse, verse 11 and then on into verse 12. And so I thought it would be good for us to use this as an opportunity to just review a couple of key things about the Abrahamic covenant, because this is the foundation. Again and again and again, we come back to the Abrahamic covenant and these unconditional promises that God gave to Abraham. First and foremost, he promised Abraham that through Abraham's descendants, God would develop a great nation that many nations actually would come from Abraham, and this is ultimately fulfilled. The nation that is specified is actually Israel, but other nations came from him through Ishmael and through his grandson Esau. You have a large segment of the Arabs in the area around immediately surrounding Israel, the Edomites, uh, the Moabites, we've been studying them in our study on Second Kings, The Mo- uh, Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites, as well as other uh, Arab tribes, the Ishmaelites, and uh, blended in with the Midianites. All of these different nations and ethnic groups came from the loins of Abraham, all in fulfillment of, of statements that God made again and again and again. Genesis 12:2, 13,16, 15,5, 17, one, two and seven, and then Genesis 22:17, which is the passage where Abraham is asked by God to sacrifice Isaac. That's the next example that's going to be given in uh, Abraham's life that when God tested him. So that ho- this whole idea of testing is related to inheritance and the promise. So our second second aspect of the Abrahamic covenant was land, described as an actual piece of real estate bordered by the Mediterranean Sea and the River Euphrates, covering much of what is modern Syria, uh, all of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, and parts of modern Iraq. All would have been included in the original land grant given by God to Abraham. Passages in tw- uh, Genesis 12:7 and uh, Twelve, seven, thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen and seventeen. Thirteen verses, fourteen, fifteen and seventeen. Uh, chapter fifteen, seven to twenty-one is your key passage when the covenant is actually cut and the God sacrifices the animals, cuts them in half. Uh, Abraham falls asleep and God passes through between the halves of the animals uh, alone, indicating that is a unilateral uh, permanent covenant and then uh Genesis 17:8. Third, we have uh so the land pro- I mean the nation promise relates to seed although that specifically is going to be fulfilled in the individual of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that whole idea of promising descendants, promising a seed must be traced back to Genesis 3:15 when God said that the seed of the woman would step on the head of the seed of the serpent and tracing that idea of seed all the way through, all the way through Genesis. So Abraham, the third provision, first provision is seed, second land, third had to do with blessing. Abraham himself was to be blessed by God and was to be a blessing to those around him and this went into effect immediately as he and uh, during his life, engaged in various activities that benefited those around him. Genesis 12:2, Genesis 15:6, Genesis 22:15 through 17. God said that he would make Abraham's name great in 12:2. That is specifically a, in contrast, in light of what we studied on Tuesday night with the Tower of Babel incident in the plain of Shinar, why did they build a, build the uh, uh, Tower of Babel in the plain of Shinar? They did it because they wanted to make their name great, and so, in contrast to the kingdom of man that wants to assert its own itself and make itself great, you have God saying to Abraham that if he will walk. Humbly, in obedience with god god will God promises to make his name great uh, verse five uh, point five those who bless abraham's um, it should read abraham's descendants. I think I got a phone call right in the middle of editing that point. Those who bless abraham's descendants will be blessed those who be, uh, bless Abraham and his descendants rather will be blessed. Those who bless you, I will bless. And so this is the basis for, uh, believers treating, uh, Jews well and treating Israel well and supporting Israel. Not because we believe that everything that they do is right or everything that the, uh, Jewish nation, that the, that Israel, every decision is right. And if we disagree with national policies of Israel, it doesn't necessarily mean that one is anti-Semitic or going against Israel. It may mean that one has good sense and can think objectively, but uh, that always confuses, confuses people when we get into this this particular area. And one of the things that has developed over the last ten years is the attempt by the liberal political left to try to create distrust between what is perceived as a power block that is the evangelical right and the evangelical support for for Israel. And so the seeds of distrust have been uh, sown or attempted to be sown among Jews by constantly uh, stating these myths that the only reason those evangelicals want you to uh, support you is because they want to get all the Jews back into the land, so Jesus will come back, and when Jesus comes back there's going to be the Battle of Armageddon, and all the Jews will be killed. see so the only reason they want to support Israel is so that all the Jews will get killed and they, This has been going on going on for about ten years last year when I went to the uh, APAC convention in um, in Washington. that was one of the things that was addressed in a A breakout session dealing with the topic of how to understand our evangelical allies. And it was handled very well by the panel that was there. And there were a number of rabbis that got up during the question and answer session and said that um, they had had tremendous um, opportunities to some of them to speak in Evangelical churches, and they had worked with evangelicals and joint projects many times, and and so they were saying, you know, none of this is none of this is true. This is not uh, not an accurate statement. And uh, one lady on the panel said that to be perfectly honest, the only reason that or one of the main reasons that evangelicals want to support Israel and support Jews is because in Genesis 12:3 God promised a blessing for those who bless Israel, and they just want to be blessed by God. Everybody got a good chuckle out of that. So. Point number six, there's also a the reverse promise. Those who curse Israel or curse the Jews, those who are antagonistic to Israel will be cursed. And there's a different word used in the Hebrew, even though both, both words are translated cursed, the first word has to do with um, treating somebody Lightly, just not 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 treating them with disrespect. It's not a harsh word at all. It's a rather a light word. Those who treat you lightly, those who treat you in a cavalier manner, and then the second word for cursed has to do, conveys the idea of a harsh judgment. In other words, those who do not respect you or treat you with respect will be harshly judged. And so that is a very, very strong statement in terms of anti-Semitism. Seventh, God promises that in uh, through, or through Abraham all nations, all people will be blessed. That is ultimately fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of all men. It's not a limited atonement, it is unlimited atonement. Jesus died for everybody the reason that it, the only reason that all are not saved is because there are many who choose to reject Christ and not believe in him or they never want to know anything about God in terms of negative volition at God consciousness and so they are never saved uh but their sins have been paid for uh, by, by Christ on the cross Eighth point: There is a specific promise that Sarah will have a son. This isn't just some sort of abstract thing in the distance. Are going to, uh, or it's not going to come about through some sort of surrogate. Um, that's what you had with uh, Hagar was one of the original attempts at uh, a surrogate pregnancy. Uh, so Sarah will have a son. It's not going to be through some other uh, wife. This is promised in. Genesis fifteen one to four and seventeen fifteen uh to twenty-one. Ninth, God promised Abraham that there would be a bondage of about four hundred years, that they would not be in the land, and that they would be in slavery. And that was fulfilled in the Egyptian bondage. That was promised in Genesis fifteen, thirteen through fifteen. Uh, Tenth point, other nations would come from Abraham in 17.3 through 6. That's fulfilled in the Arab states. Uh, Eleven, there's, uh, there was a change of name from Avram to Avraham. Uh, Avram meaning exalted father, which could have referred to Abraham's own father. Tendency of fathers to name their sons names that would reflect positively upon them. So, um, <clears throat> Abraham could have been named uh, by Terah uh, to reflect upon his own exaltation. And Avraham has the, sounds like the uh, Hebrew words for father of a multitude. There's often these little play on words, puns, paranormalisias, whatever you want to call them in Hebrew. That, uh, the names don't exactly mean that, but they sound like the words that mean that. Uh, twelfth provision. Sarai's name is ch- also changed from Sarah, which simply means princess, to the princess. That little change in the ending, uh, cha- changes the significance of the word and makes it, uh, of a broader, uh, broader significance. Seventeen. 15. Then, in the 13th point, is that there was a specific sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and that was circumcision. The Noahic covenant had a sign, that was the rainbow. The Abrahamic covenant has a sign, which is circumcision, and the Mosaic covenant has a sign, which was the Sabbath. Not every covenant had a sign, but those three did. Now, just in terms of review, because this becomes the backdrop for understanding Hebrews 11. Now, what's important here, I want to take you back to just sort of a general understanding of things, is in Hebrews 11, chapter 7, I mean, Hebrews 11, verse 17, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, Offered up Isaac, so the offering up of Isaac is specifically stated to be a test of his faith in uh, Hebrews 11:17. Now we know from passages like James uh, 1:2 through 4 that we're to count it all joy when we encounter various tests, because that we, we know that the testing of our faith. And there it's not a salvation faith. It's talking about our post salvation faith, our our spiritual growth faith, utilization of the faith-rest drill as we grow from as we grow in our spiritual life. So uh James one, two through four emphasizes the point that we are to we grow through these tests. And anything can be a test. A test is simply any time you have the opportunity presented by the circumstances of life to make a choice in responding to those circumstances by trusting in God and applying what you know from the Bible or doing it your own way. And that can mean just any kind of situation that we face in life, whether they are small or minor, relatively speaking, or whether they are major events. And often this, how we train ourselves to respond in the minor events, then that sets us so that when the major event occurs, then we have set ourselves so that we don't have to think about it. We are trained to fall into that pattern. And if you don't, then when you hit the stress points in life and the external adversity builds up, you're going to fall back on what your normal operating procedure is, which is either going to be utilization of the stress busters, the problem-solving devices of Scripture, or you're going to do it your own way out of the flesh, one or the other. This morning when I was uh, waking up and drinking, trying to get, work my way through my third cup of coffee and make sure that the upper and lower eyelids were no longer close companions, I was watching an interview on Fox News with one of the police officers that was a first responder on the scene in the shooting that occurred at Fort Hood last week. And he had been a in the military. He was retired military, I believe. He had served 20 years. He was military police. And he had been on working for uh, i believe that they were they were colleen police officers that responded they were civilian police anyway that responded to that event and this was the first time that he had ever fired been in a situation where he needed to draw his weapon and fire it in the line of duty and the interviewer said well how how did you how did you respond? How did you know what to do what did that feel like he said We have been trained so much, and going to the range, firing over and over and over again, that it gets into your muscle memory so that when you hit the real situation, you just respond in terms of your training. And that's what he did. And see, if you don't train yourself... And discipline yourself to respond to the little seemingly innocuous situations in life where you train yourself to respond biblically every time. Then when you hit the tougher adversities and challenges in life, then you fall back to your default position. It's when you get in the fire, in the spiritual warfare firefight of your life, it's too late to figure out how to draw your weapon and shoot it. You have to already have that in muscle memory so it just, it becomes an automatic response so that you don't think about it. You just respond in light of your training. But the training doesn't come from the pastor. The training comes from your mentality, from your mindset, and how you apply what you learn on a day to day basis. All the pastor can do is teach you the principles but you're the one who has to apply them every day when you're driving down the freeway dealing with some uh, incompetent cashier at the bank or whatever it is, you have to make those decisions. Are you going to be irritable and grumpy and impatient? Are you going to or, uh, respond in grace and kindness and all of the other attributes that we that need to be part of our our life? Are we going to trust God when things don 't go the way we should when we lose our job, when our investments go south? All of these kinds of things that hit us are we going to be maintain that relaxed mental attitude that comes because we know that our life and our times, our circumstances are in the hand of God, and we can just then rest and relax and think in terms of, well, how does God want me to to use me in this situation now that this has happened? And if you're not relaxed from doctrine, then what's going to happen is you're going to hit that situation, and you're going to press the panic button, and you're going to, uh, fall apart and then three days later you're going to say okay now wait a minute I think I learned something about this in Bible class let me go find my notes and that's a little too late you've been failing the test for three days so we have to learn about the tests and how God used these tests In Abraham's life, and when we went through Genesis, we looked at these in terms of 13 tests that I identified that God used in in spiritual advance for Abraham. Now, one other thing I want to remind you of as I go, as I look at this, is just to help you get this back in your head. And I really got this as a core idea in Charlie's framework series. And that is to recognize That how the Bible, the New Testament, uses Old Testament events and people and how the New Testament then connects these Old Testament people and events and situations to key doctrines that are then further developed and further enhanced in in the New Testament, it shows the unity of Scripture. You're not going to therefore just, as, and I'm really teaching the prep school teachers here, that means you don't just teach the life of Abraham where it comes across as some sort of uh, historical or biographical study. How do New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, go to Abraham and use Abraham. There are various ways in which Abraham is brought up in New Testament context. One is the importance of the Abrahamic covenant, and that's primarily in Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 4. Also, you have Abraham uh, used as the father of of, of faith and and the one who's justified by faith, and he is the picture of justification by faith, and that's Romans uh, chapter 4. And then here in Hebrews, the picture is of Abraham as one who grows. We see his whole life in in more detail almost than anybody else in the Old Testament, and we see his spiritual growth from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22. In those 11, uh, 11 chapters, we go through Abraham's life, and we see him grow from where he is in Genesis 12, not trusting God, trying to solve his problems on his own, uh, not really understanding everything, partial obedience until we get to Genesis 22, and God tells him to kill the promised son and to sacrifice him, and he says y- yes, sir, and heads off without giving it a second thought because he was completely confident that even if he did kill Isaac, that God would bring him back from the dead. He just he rest was resting and relaxed in the promise of God. And so that was more real to him, finally, than anything else. And that's where we need to be. So just a reminder of this, because it charts our own growth, and it picks up on that idea of a using the Bible to give us a framework for thinking. It's not, not you know, I also saw this, it's saw a problem with this in the trips that we've taken to Israel. In fact, I tried to, I've been, Working on uh, travel manual, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's got a great book on the historical geography, uh, Travelers, I forget what it's called, but it's like a travel guide for Israel. It's very extensive, but it's history. It's archaeology, period, boom, no theology there. You go to all these other Christian travelers' guides to Israel and all these different things you can pick up at the, at the store. They don't differ at all. From the travel guides that are written in, in the secular marketplace, they just give you historical information. You go to Israel, you go to you you listen to many pastors and many uh, um, you know Bible teachers, seminary professors, and they'll take you to a site like uh, you know the the, the wall, the, the Temple Mount, Mount of Olives, Bethlehem, wherever, and they'll just go through the history of what happened there. This is what happened, period. The real issue is, why is it important that that happened here? How does that fit within God's, God's plan from Genesis to Revelation? That's where you can then answer the question, why is it important for me to really know and understand this, and how does this shape the way I look at and respond to the events of life? And that's where you're, do, you're really taking it to application. And that's what's really going on there is what Charlie identified as framework. Other people have called it a couple of other things. But that's what that, that, where that goes. It builds a structure of thought so that you have a, this biblical framework then that defines and shapes the way you think so that when you encounter circumstances and situations in life, the first thing you're going to do is where am I, where do I find the parallels In the scripture, who went through something like this, how did they respond, how did they fail, how did they succeed, and then how does that, uh, what are the principles I learned from that for my situation and my circumstance? That's the essence of what framework is. And what Charlie realized when he started that ser- series back when he was at, at Lu- Lu- Lubbock back in the er- early 70s is that he had all these college kids who had some kind of background in, in, in Bible churches or doctrinal churches, but they couldn't put they couldn't put any of it together. They just heard these random, disconnected stories in the Bible, but they didn't understand how they connected, and once you connect the dots, how that then impacts the way you think. So he started uh, developing this this uh, approach, which was just brilliant, starting off with the fact that as you go through the Old Testament, there are key events that are referred to and brought up again over and over again in the New Testament events that Stephen brought up when he gives his sermon in uh, Acts chapter 7, events that Paul constantly goes to to to, uh, provide the framework for understanding what he's saying about the cross and the work of Christ on the cross. And if you don't understand Genesis 1, You don't understand anything about creation, you can't understand Romans 1. If you don't understand Genesis chapter 2, you can't understand Ephesians 5 and the whole doctrine of marriage and the role of men and the role of women. If you don't understand Genesis 3, which is where sin and the judgment for sin is introduced, then you can't understand why Jesus had to go to the cross and these events creation and the uh, creation separate creation of the man and the woman and the fall of sin are are referred to at key times uh, throughout the new testament and so you have to learn to think in those terms to build that structure these aren't just isolated episodes and stories and people that are referred to in the new testament there is a a divine design in the pattern, why God chooses these believers among the hundreds of other believers that existed in the time from Noah to uh Noah to Jesus. So Abraham's first test was the test to obey God and go to a new land and leave the family behind. That's in Genesis twelve uh, one through nine. And this is the first thing that the writer of Hebrews mentions back in verse uh, in Hebrews eleven eight by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called. The last thing he mentions in relationship to Abraham is by faith Abraham when he was tested in verse seventeen. And so, what I'm going to cover in these thirteen points is what it, it fills out what what else happened between the first event and the thirteenth event. So the first test was to go to a new land, leave the family behind, and it was only partial obedience. Remember, he took his nephew with him and his father with him. And so he uh, he doesn't leave the whole family behind. He takes him with him. He goes to Haran up in the northern part of Syria now, and he stays there for probably uh, 10 or 15 years until his father dies. And even then he doesn't drop off Lot. He takes him with him. And what happens? That creates a problem. We get into Genesis chapter Uh, Thirteen and Lot's herdsmen are having battles with Abraham's herdsmen. There's all this family conflict that comes along. Because whenever you try to solve the problems in your life with human viewpoint, what happens is you create new problems. Because human viewpoint never works. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. So human viewpoint... Uh, may provide a, t- a, a, what, a seemingly temporary solution, but it's going to exacerbate the problem and unintended consequences, and you're going to be faced with a new battery of problems which come as a result of, uh, of those bad decisions. And if you extrapolate that to a nation, when nations use bad decisions from human viewpoint to solve their problems, then all that happens is it creates a whole new series of problems and those problems make more problems until eventually that house of, that house of cards for those nations eventually collapses because it's all built on a, on a, on a fantasy foundation. So, Abraham has partial obedience and it sets up for future problems. Second, a test is the test to trust God by staying in the land. He had orders from God to go to the land, but no orders to go out of the land. And so when he got in the land, he had a test because all of a sudden the land that is going to uh, provide for him uh, comes under this famine and drought, and he decides, oh, I have to go solve the problem myself. I'm going to head down to Egypt. Now, if you were anybody else in the world, it was okay to go to Egypt to get food. But if you were Abraham, it wasn't because God had given you specific revelation that he's giving you this land, and the issue is, are you going to trust God to provide for you in this uh, set of circumstances? So he failed. He went to Egypt for food without divine authorization, uh, decides he has to lie about his relationship to Sarah because he's afraid that the affair. You see a really wimpy Abraham when he was younger, 50, 60, 70 years old, but he was younger compared to how old he lived. Um, So it sets up other problems down the line. The third test was the test to treat Lot with grace and generosity when all all of Lot's employees, all of his servants, are creating problems with all of Abraham's uh, servants. And these guys were wealthy. They had... Uh, huge numbers of men that worked for them when the when we get to the uh, uh next test later on in chapter fourteen dealing with the Keter-Laomer invasion when uh that occurs and th- that group of the five kings' heads m- comes through sweeps through the uh southern part of the of the land of Israel around the Dead Sea and wipes out these towns. Uh, Plunders everybody, kidnaps a lot of prisoners, and heads heads north. Then Abraham uh, is going to decide to go after. uh, Is going to have to go go after Lot. But when he does so, he he takes several hundred servants with him. So he had a large operation, and Lot had a large operation. And when they these two uh, these two organizations began to fight each other. This was extremely unpleasant, and Abraham's was obviously probably larger than Lot. He was the uh, older. He was the one who had the primary wealth, and so he could have just squashed Lot like a bug, but he deals with him very graciously and generously and offers him any part of the land. This is the land that God gave to Abraham. didn't give it to Lot. Uh, and so he offers this to, to Lot and says, you pick the land you want to go to. And so a, a Lot picked the most beautiful land, the most well-watered land. Not that way today, but it's all desert and and <clears throat> barren. But then it was. So he passes this test by handling the the people testing with Lot in grace and in generosity. Grace orientation he's trusting God for the land God promised it to him so he can he's able to relax and and be generous fourth point there's a test to protect and defend his neighbors what was he supposed to do he was to be a blessing to all that was a command in Genesis 12:3 it doesn't say you be a blessing it's not a, a description it is a a command that he was to bless those around him And so when the Keterleomer invasion occurs and they come down and they wipe out these towns and steal everything and kidnap the people and haul them off into captivity, he organizes all of his men and he goes after them, exercises the initiative, and he defeats them. And obviously he's trusting God in the midst of all of this to provide him the victory. And he defeats these uh, Kings rescues Lot and uh, rescues all of the plunder, all of the uh, material goods that had been stolen and returned everything to its original owner. And in the process, he has to another test, which is to express gratitude to God. After he has his great victory, is he going to become puffed up in arrogance? Think about how great he is, what a great victory he, uh, he's had over these uh this organized army, or whether he's going to be humble and express gratitude to God, which is what he does. So he passes the test, and he gave of that which he rescued, he gave a portion to Melchizedek. So he passes that test. Then the sixth test... Was a test to quit worrying about when God's going to provide for the seed. God promised you a seed from your own loins. Just relax; it'll happen when uh, God's timing comes along. Don't push it. And so God pro- gives him a promise at the beginning of Genesis 15 in the first verse, where God says, "Do not fear; I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great." There's your promise. And what's the promise going to bring? A reward, inheritance. Notice the connection between uh, those ideas. And then it's in that chapter that God is going to cut the covenant, formally institute the covenant with Abraham by laying out the sacrifices, splitting them in two, causing a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham, and then God alone passed between uh, the sacrifices. So Abraham passes that test. Then in the seventh test, he's going to fail, fail miserably with consequences that reverberate down through time. And this is when Sarah came to him and said, you know, I'm just getting too old to do this baby thing. You are too, but but you, you, you're still functional. Why don't you take my handmaiden, Sarah? And so we have another human viewpoint solution, which always generates more problems and we still are faced with the problem of the Arabs and the whole Arab-Israeli conflict. So he failed, he listened to Sarah, but later there's spiritual growth on Sarah's part, and that's what we come to in our next couple of verses in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 11, we see the evidence in Sarah. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive... Seed, now isn't that an odd phrase? Women don't produce seed, men produce seed, women produce an egg. But the term is used because it connects the dots of the seed terms from Genesis 3.15 all the way down to Jesus. By faith, Sarah received strength. This is referring to the fact that God physically and I mean, miraculously restored her physically so that she could reproduce. He restored her reproductive uh, organs. And I have heard a medical doctor uh, talk about this, all that would be involved in this, because when a woman has gone through menopause and all of the things that happen to the womb, and the ovaries and everything dries up and it doesn't produce eggs anymore and everything is shot what is necessary for god god to do in order to enable her to be pregnant is is miraculous he's got to bring all of that all those mechanisms back to life and restore them. And it's much more than just, you know, poof, you're pregnant. There's a there's a whole uh, thing that has to be restored there because the dried-up uterus uh, womb can no longer stretch in order to uh, provide for the growth of the baby inside. So all that has to be changed. And it's just a great picture of how God can bring life where there is death. And it's all, all of these uh, ideas point towards what God can do spiritually in terms of regeneration and bringing spiritual life where there is spiritual death. So Sarah received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. So she is trusting in the character of God and focusing on the promise that he had made to Abraham and that God would fulfill that particular promise. And that takes us back to Genesis 17:16 through 19. And this is where God is speaking to Abraham, telling him that that the seed is going to come through Sarah. And in verse 16 and 17, God said, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now he's not laughing because he doesn't believe God. He's laughing from joy. And he said in his heart, "There's a little skepticism there. Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old, and shall Sarah, who's ninety years old, bear a child? Will this really happen?" I mean, he's not really doubting God; it's just too—it's beyond his comprehension. And in verse 19, God said, "No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Itzach, meaning laughter. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his." descendants. And so that goes on. The Abrahamic covenants are going to be reiterated several times in Genesis in terms of Isaac, in terms of Jacob, in terms of of Joseph as well. Then in Genesis 21, uh, 1 through 3, we have the immediate event of the birth described, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. This is the backdrop for what we understand in in genesis eleven eleven I mean hebrews eleven eleven the Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as He had spoken. Promise is fulfilled precisely, not just generally, not just in some sort of vague spiritualized sense, but literally and physically, there is a a birth verse, verse two for Sarah conceived she's been strengthened. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. See, the whole issue was trusting God to do it in the right timing. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Yitzhak, or uh, Isaac. So that's the fulfillment. So Hebrews uh, 11 is not just focusing on Abraham and his faith, but also Sarah's faith that she grew spiritually through these tests as well, uh, specifically related to the promises of land, seed, and blessing that God had outlined in the Abrahamic covenant. The eighth test was a test to be circumcised. I'm not going to go into descriptive details here, but when you're about uh, 90 years old and you don't have anesthesia, this is not something I'm sure that Abraham looked forward to. This was described in Genesis 17, 1 to 25, and Abraham passed the test. Then uh, the ninth test was a test of hospitality to his visitors in Genesis chapter 18. First 15 verses, these three strangers come to Abraham's tent. He sees them coming. And the test is how is he going to respond to strangers? And he's going to respond to them out of grace and generosity and hospitality, wants them to come in, rest, relax, take a nap. And he goes out and physically uh, finds the, the the calf that he is going to uh, cook for dinner. He doesn't go down to H-E-B or Rice Epicurean or Central Market and pick up a to-go meal or called palpados. He goes out to the field, uh, gets the calf uh, or bullock, brings it in, slaughters it, skins it, butchers it comes and prepares the meal for scratch. This is going to take several hours. Those of you who have been deer hunting and done your own butchering, you know what I'm talking about. It doesn't happen uh, quickly. So they're there for quite a while, and he is going to give them uh, the best that he can. He is going to be generous with them, and so show, this shows his grace orientation to those visitors. And in the course of that time, he will discover... God will allow him to see that it is the angel of the Lord. One of them is the Lord, Je- the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. The other two are angels. And so as he discovers that, then he has another test. What is he going to do uh, now and ask for when he has the Lord sitting at dinner? What would you ask for if the Lord was sitting at dinner? Well, Lord, you want to make sure my job uh, stays. I don't get laid off. Uh, why don 't you cure me of this or cure me of that? We often would fall back on a self centered response, but that 's not abraham he 's passing the test he is oriented towards others, and so his question is when he what are y'all doing finds out that the two angels are going to go off to judge and destroy Sodom, and so he says, well. Uh, Lord, would you destroy the city if there were 20 righteous men there? I do know. Well, if there were 10, you know, he just works it down, and, t- and he's building a case with God. This is, has implications for prayer life, building a rationale based on doctrine, based on grace, for, on the basis of which he can present a case to God to deliver Lot and his family. So he shows grace orientation to Lot, who's done nothing to deserve it, and he shows his impersonal love toward Lot, and he focuses on uh, his Lot's deliverance, even though he's living down there in Sin City, Sodom. Then in verse 11, I mean point 11, uh, the test to protect the sea during his visit to Gerar. This is in the land of the Philistines, the area along the coast of there, the Gaza Strip today. And he goes there, and once again he pulls the same sin. So we have patterns. You just keep committing the same old sins you ever did. Don't don't get self-righteous with Abraham just because it's 20 years later. He's still trying to lie about Sarah and pass her off as his sister. We all have the same patterns of, of sin in our life, and we keep failing again and again and again. But God is deals with us in grace. So he tries to pass off Sarah, and he fails this test. But God intervenes to protect the seed to make sure that no one gets the idea that it was someone other than Abraham, who's the father of the soon-to-be-born Isaac. Then the uh, twelfth test was the test to protect the heir. Now that Isaac's born, what are we going to do with Ishmael and with Hagar? Because there's going to be jealousy and uh, other problems in the house with these two boys, jockeying for favor. So God gives him uh, guidance, once again through his, this time through his wife, who says, you know, we ought, to, we ought to send them away. And so he recognizes the wisdom of that, and he sends Hagar and Ishmael away. So he passes this test because he understands he has to protect the seed. And so he's finally getting the point that God is going to do what God promises he's going to do and that God has the power to control the circumstances and it's not up to us to try to manipulate the situation to get God's promises fulfilled. And this means he finally gets it so that when God... Uh, sends him to sacrifice the promised seed in genesis twenty two and to take his son, his only son, and to take him to the mountains of Moriah and to sacrifice him there. Abraham says, Sure thing, I'm packing my bags. We're on the way. And it's in he- Hebrews, though, that we come to understand when we when we get down to uh, verse nineteen that Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So the point is that Abraham clearly understood the whole doctrine of resurrection and knew that God could raise Isaac from the dead because he would he would have to in order to fulfill his promises because he had finally learned God always fulfills his promises. He never breaks his word and you can always trust him. So this then is the backdrop for our study on Hebrews 11:11 11, 11, and 12. And this leads into the conclusion at this part. There's an intermediate conclusion in this section, verse 13, that these all died in faith. Who are the these? The these takes us back to the examples that he has talked about already. Uh, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. They all died in faith. Uh, Isaac and Jacob as well, which he had mentioned in, um, in verse 9. Uh, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. What promises? The land promise, the seed promise, and the ultimate fulfillment of those. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. God gave them just a tantalizing hint of what that fulfillment would be like. So having seen them afar off, they were assured of them. They were confident in God. Faith is that confidence we have in God. And they embraced them, that is, the promises, confessed, that is, admitted that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, that we they weren't disengaged from the earth. They were involved in commerce. They were involved in uh, trade. They were involved in all kinds of things. But they still recognized that that wasn't the ultimate end. The ultimate end has to do with the heavenly citizenship, the heavenly destiny, not the earthly destiny. Verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. How do they declare They declared it by their obedience, by the way faith changed the way they lived. And so verse 15, truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, that is, or uh, the Chaldees, they would have had opportunity to return. They could have gone back. That's what that's saying if they had wanted to. But they didn't because they were focusing forward and not uh, backward. So conclusion, verse 16, now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. They've had their priorities changed by the word of God. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So we'll come back next time, look at a couple of uh, ideas that are inherent in this in terms of Earthly responsibilities and heavenly uh, destiny, and then we will press on into the next section of Abraham's life dealing with the test of uh, with Isaac. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things and be reminded that you are absolutely trustworthy in all of your promises and that we need to uh, be encouraged to study these promises, read, memorize, learn promises that you might be glorified in our trust in you and trust in those things you have promised us. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith as you strengthened uh, Sarah in order for her to give birth, that we might be uh, strong witnesses and a strong testimony for you and your grace and all of your character and attributes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.